truth, love, and the good. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Tension Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts and co-founders, Stefan Ravalli, a meditation and mindfulness teacher, also a mindful service teacher and content creator as well. And I am joined today by my good friend and co-host and co-founder, David Tian. How are you, David? Hey, great. What's up? Good to be here with you again. And uh, good to introduce Tension to our video crowd. And uh, I'm excited to get going. Me as well. Yeah, so this is a topic that I've been working on for uh, about two or three years uh, intently. So producing content around it, but the, it seems like through just more probing that the lesson's not getting across or they don't quite understand the principle. So I want to dedicate this whole uh, discussion with Stefan on it and also pick Stefan's brain because I don't think I've had the discussion with Stefan. Um, so maybe he's got some new ways of approaching it. So here, here's, the, here's the topic. <laughs> um, the idea of being enough or worthy, that that is what is keeping achievers from finding fulfillment and happiness on a consistent basis and just as basically their default state. And instead, uh, being achievers from a young age, probably uh, having that uh, growth and striving as priorities of ways of becoming significant or feeling significant as their default mode. And when things are going well, you know, in other words, they see progress in their growth or in their striving or the results are coming in, they're generally happy. When there's some kind of stagnation or they meet an obstacle or there's any kind of backwards progress, uh, they lose their uh, uh, passion in life and they start to now thrash and struggle. And, and then especially in their uh, romantic or intimate or love relationships, I'm thinking specifically about uh, family relationships. So uh, this is the quintessential or the classic uh, achiever who spends all day at the office and all week at the office and then wonders why his kids hate him or his kids uh, aren't uh, connected to him. And then maybe as he's getting to retirement, realizing that he doesn't really even know his kids very well. And the same, of course, with his wife, that he sees her more as a sidekick or um, a, an accessory, uh, and, and not in any kind of literal sense of like the trophy wife. That, that's too easy to dismantle and dismiss. But that they actually see the wife, and many of them are looking for when you ask them, what do you want in a partner? as a part of his list uh, and very high up on his list is a woman that will help him in his career and challenge him to grow. So these are very still achiever metrics for looking for a wife. And the, they're wondering why, why don't I feel love and connection in my life? And maybe it's because they're prioritizing these other things as achievers, growth and striving and achieving as the basis for not just happiness, but also love. Letting love into their lives seems foreign to them. They're not even sure how that happens without earning it. And so in all these different areas of, of life that I help um, people in, including uh, dating relationships, there is in the background this assumption that you have to go and earn it. And I had this assumption uh, until I guess maybe seven, five, six, seven years ago. And even in the old dating products, I used to uh, coach in and record uh, almost a decade ago now. And some of them that are still being sold now by other companies uh, that I created um, over a decade ago would say that you do need to earn your confidence as a kind of like competency view of com confidence, that you're confident when you know what the fuck you're doing 
So learn to do it well, and you will feel confident that you don't need to do any kind of trickery of the mind to feel confident. And um, I was solidly an achiever, as you can imagine, and you can see in just that assumption. And it was quite a lot of work to come to the realization at a deep level in my unconscious mind that just sitting with who I am now, even though obviously there is no finite uh, improvement. So it's not like we're getting scored out of 100. Uh, are you a 100 out of 100 human being or something like that? There's always room for improvement, no matter how high you go. Uh, and despite that, I am okay or enough or worthy of love just in who I am now. And even more, I guess, let me just give two examples real quick, two analogies or metaphors real quick, and then pass it over to you, Stefan, is the analogy of the baby. What the hell? The analogy of the baby. The metaphor or the, the image of the baby. When a baby is first born, it doesn't need to do anything. Uh, to to be worthy of love and we naturally feel love for a defenseless innocent baby that's just a newborn and it's an amazing thing that as we get bigger as human beings we take on these beliefs that we now have to go and earn it and somehow then we are worth as human beings actually um, decreases over time the bigger we get which is which can't possibly be true and if it's true then someone needs to defend a, a view of that because um, it doesn't seem to me uh, just obvious on the surface of it. So there's, once you encounter a baby, a newborn, and your heart melts, and you just feel love for it immediately, and don't demand or expect or need anything from it for you to feel this love for it, um, that is one of the turning points of a, of a especially a, a man who's weighted down, but weighed down by toxic masculinity. That's usually one of the big turning points, a newborn, and sensing that. And then the second is, if you if we think about human beings who are developmentally delayed or handicapped. And I hope that in your life you have um, someone that, is, uh, that you love who is in that situation. Um, I have an autistic nephew who's actually uh, a brilliant, almost a savant, maybe a savant, um, but we didn't know that until he was about 14. He was just nonverbal. And I've taken care of uh, through social services in Ontario. It was paid to Basically, from, I didn't do much. I just basically babysitting, make sure he didn't hurt himself. Uh, an older man who was autistic and nonverbal. And we had like almost like a Ouija board kind of thing where I held his hand and pointed through a letter board to communicate. Um, but he needed help with a lot of things physically. And just thinking, okay, he's got almost zero achievements here. Um, it's a big deal when he can dress himself and all kinds of other things. And does that make him less worthy or less? Um, enough, less okay, as a human being uh, worth, worthy of love and connection? Is he less worthy of love and connection? Is he less worthy of our attention and our care? And, you know, um, and I hope the answer to that is no. <laughs> no. I might run into like an achievement Nazi or something. Um, but I think on the surface, again, we would say, no, he's just as worthy and has that intrinsic worth as a human being. And uh, I like to use um, the a, a brilliant story, Flowers for Algernon, uh, is a book about, uh, well, you should read it. It's, if, I, if I summarize it, I'm now spoiling it for you. And uh, it was a book uh, given to me by my wife, and it took a while for me to have that lesson sink in, but fiction and story is such a powerful way to, to do it. And it was another example right there. Most people don't actually take away that lesson of human worth from reading that book, and instead it's about some other kind of 
uh, tech innovation or something like that. But um, that's a really great illustration as well of where do we draw the line at, at which point is that person who cannot achieve or does not have achievements less worthy as a human being of love and connection. And then the, the counter argument, and I'll just leave it there, counter argument often is in the back of their mind, they won't say it out loud, but at the more I probe, I find the counter argument is, um, yes, it's true that we're worthy of love and connection, but we're not worthy of uh, whatever uh, worldly metric that they want, like money or a promotion at their job or uh, in athletics, winning the trophy, right? So that's all true. But then what happens is the achiever links being worthy of love and connection to being worthy of some other outward thing, external thing. So his, in order for him to feel that love and connection, to allow that to happen, he's got to get all these other accolades in and locked in to allow himself to feel that worth um, in being enough as a human being. And when, as soon as he makes that link in his un unconscious mind or consciously, um, he's now undermining his own self-worth. And then they wonder why their relationships don't succeed and either they're on the grandiose narcissism side where they just take everybody for granted and they're just plowing forward on their career and then they don't make room for that love and connection that's there all the time whenever they want it and they have but they have to dial into it and not be focused on achieving in the future or they become needy and codependent because they're lacking in intrinsic or the belief that they're intrinsically worthy and they become insecure. They have these core insecurities that sabotage through the neediness. They sabotage their attractiveness in their dating. Um, so either way, it just destroys their personal lives. And this ends up being the fundamental issue that I keep running up against in working with clients. The just They have the intellectual assent to, yes, I understand intellectually that I am enough, but then they run their lives in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I love this territory to explore since uh, it's stuff that I think even um, someone who might seem contented and do a lot of practices that help them feel more calm and at peace and, you know, settled in themselves will experience um, because this is a line um, that you can always be walking throughout your life. Um, and I'll explain what I mean by this. So when I started meditating, um, I began to become a lot more connected with my, I guess you can say just innate value. And that's what I found in people that I taught as well. Um, they're just suddenly realizing that who they are is, is I don't want to say perfect, because that's, kind of that's kind of a trap that people fall into with a lot of spiritual language and why a lot of people avoid it. Cause I think people like to just say, you're so perfect. You're, you're just like the universe is absolutely pristine creation. Right. And then they say, okay, well this is potentially something the ego can hijack and say like, I'm, you know, I'm just so great. I don't need to at all manage myself and at all work on this stuff that's creating problematic dynamics in my life. And, you know, I don't need to be at all considerate to others or, or anything, right? So um, that is a trap and one that um, I, I, don't, I don't bother entertaining because I think there's a more honest way of going about all of this. Um, there's a realization that happens when you start meditating that. Um, whatever you are is simply, it's just, it's right. It's just, 
it's whatever it's whatever it needs to be. Um, you know, it's you're whatever you need to be, and you are to the world whatever you need to be to the world. Um, it's not going to look perfect, and it's not going to feel perfect exactly. Um, although there is a place that you can you can contact and begin to sort of integrate with your daily life that has a sense of um, of peace and acceptance with things as they are and life as it unfolds. But this is only one half of the, of the coin, one side of the coin here. And the other side is this part of us that is sort of driven to always grow and improve and always refine ourselves. And that part can't, can't be um, sacrificed to simply you know, revel in our perfection, so to speak. And I think that's why a lot of people maybe avoid um, Eastern ideas because they think like, oh, it's just like an escape hatch out of, uh, you know, life and all of its challenges. And I think a lot of the times people um, will really quickly say after they start meditating that um, they just want to just get away from it all and go on a retreat or go up to the mountains or just live at some cabin somewhere and like life will be better there. I think we've talked about this. It's, it's their um, need to remove themselves from, from challenges and their need to remove themselves because they realize that they've had an unsustainable relationship with their life because they've been striving and, and pursuing um, the wrong metrics for, for, for valuing themselves. And they're like, I need to shut this off and find something else that actually is a lot more, you know, enriching and sustainable. So they, they think, okay, well, I just got to go. I just got to go and just become a monk or something. Um, but I will tell you that when you do that, you will then li- begin living this peaceful life and you will feel agitated because most people aren't designed to be monks because most people have this drive to also, you know, be out there in the world bringing your value to the world, seeing your value in action and um, feeling like you're, you know, a part of a community that values you. And, and also that you're experiencing like, I guess you could say more aggressive and dynamic challenges than the ones that you might experience in a sort of simple monastic life. Right. So, so basically when you're, um, kind of seeking to escape that that's that's healthy sometimes we need to like like pull back um but yeah hmm? can I jump in yeah before i forget this thought so in the asian in asian traditions and in asian history there is there's rhetoric about non-doing and i guess kind of perfectionism um, the buddha nature is already in you and just need to realize it etc but the truth is like this the practice is um, that that's just rhetoric <laughs> and practitioners understand that it's just rhetoric. And what's happening is there's actually a, a clear hierarchy in the monasteries. And of course you're in the monastery to get better at something. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you get better at meditating, better at being a monk, better at the rituals, better at the, the, the uh, reciting the vinya or whatever it is, right? Wh- whatever the religious thing to do is you get better at it. And then you have experienced monks who are experienced at something. It's not just, being human, but it's, well, they might say it that like that as a rhetoric, but you're better at something. And all through Chinese philosophy, Confucianism, Taoism, there's also um, a kind of skill, the skill of life or flow or wu-wei, 
and being better at being one with the Tao. And it's something that uh, as you study ancient Chinese philosophy, you just discover that it's about self-cultivation. So you're cultivating something. Whether the idea is that you're growing a seed into a plant, which by the way, the metaphor there is you're the seed uh, and people are seeds growing into plants. Or it's that you're an unformed lump of clay and through cultivation, you form yourself into a useful vessel um, made of clay. <laughs> and no matter what, the idea is that you're growing in some direction. And then they also have theories of, to explain why certain seeds don't grow. They don't have the right water or the right conditions or sunlight, etc. Or maybe the wrong ruler, maybe the wrong tender. And um, so baked into all religious practices is some kind of getting better at uh, assumption. Otherwise, there'd be no point to doing any of it. And I suppose one of the differences in on the other side of the equation, so we started off with being enough and being worthy on one side of things, and then the other, growing and striving. But even with the growing and striving, um, as, as you were talking, I, I realized that we do have this difference between growing versus striving. Those are very different things. So one of the problems is the reason why a guy would come back from work being burnt out during the day and seeing his wife and kids is sort of like furniture in the house that takes for granted because they're there to serve him as furniture is. We sit on it. We use it to put things on, etc. cetera, um, instead of seeing them as intrinsically worthy of and, and having that love and connection with them as the thing that makes the whole, makes the whole enterprise of life worth living. Um, it's because when he's at work, he's striving. Often it's because he comes back enervated. He's drained mm -hmm. and the work itself was not going to, was not fulfilling. Whereas growing, in many cases, makes it so that when you're enjoying what you do and you love, so you love doing it, you lost track of time doing it, and it has some greater meaning for you. So even while you're doing it, you see how it, that day's work fits into this bigger picture that's of deeper meaning. So it's greater purpose for you. When you're done that task, three to four, whatever hours that you're in flow, and you come out of it, you're not hating on everything. You know, so I've, I know plenty of Asian Americans who in Asian culture generally is a very, relatively speaking, hardworking culture uh, throughout all of the different philosophies, whatever, it, there's never been a philosophy. Well, I suppose ancient Taoism uh, had a rhetoric around being lazy, <laughs> but uh, this is a hardworking uh, a philosophy. And so they, there's a meritocratic, so to supposedly a meritocratic society as well for over a thousand years, um, picking their... Uh, politicians or, or government officials through very intensive examinations across the entire kingdom, imperial exam system. And uh, this is what's created this sort of like, whoa, I got to work really hard in order to earn my place in society. Whether I have that place in society is going to tell me my worth as a human being and whether I deserve respect or even have rights as a human being. Even the idea of human rights is a relatively recent thing that you have you have worth just in who you are instead of you being halfway between a human being and chattel, right? Mm. That uh, somewhere in there is, is the, the rights of the slave. And um, we so these Asians are, well, Asians all around the world are choosing careers that will hopefully give them a steady paycheck. It's not that they're enjoying the work. It's not like they finish this. It's not like, like somebody who becomes a professional musician generally loves music because it's not a very stable uh, career choice. And uh, especially if it's the kind of music you're passionate about, maybe not just teaching little kids how to play, um, you know, basic piano, but you're really into the music for its own sake. And after playing three or four hours, you're drained in a good way, 
And now you've met a need at a deep level of connecting with yourself, of connecting through art with some other thing, nature of the universe, whatever. And now you're ready, you're kind of overflowing and ready for more. And then there are those who strive in a neurotic way, in a way that they're trying to meet their need for significance that can never be fully and uh, in any kind of lasting way met through that activity. So growing and striving, just growth on its own can be pleasant, uh, energizing, uh, and it can give you that, uh, it's a different need that's being met there, growth, versus striving to meet the need for significance. So when we come back from a a time of striving to try to meet our need for significance to feel like we're enough if we put in enough hours in the job or if we uh, create this billion-dollar business, only then will we we be able to feel like we're enough and can contribute and be present with our children, with our our spouses, and and actually experience what life is all about. Um, So just pointing out the growth versus striving difference there. So I'll tell you, so what's the difference, right? So like, what's the difference? What's the thing that makes it unhealthy? Well, let's answer this question. Does every person that plays music love it? No, because there can reach a point in a musician's career where they don't love music anymore. And what has happened at that point? What makes them no longer love music? Because the thing that gives them the payoff, the thing that gives them that hit of dopamine that we become, you know, so addicted to in our striving nature is not within um, the practice of playing music itself. It's something from the outside. It's not his internal experience of playing music and the refinement of his craft, his or her craft. It's uh, this sort of validation that comes from the outside. So album sales or the cheer of the crowd or how many nude women are like breaking down your, your tour bus door. And th- there's some sort of a system of abstract measurement that will take the joy away and just simply bring the calculating mind into it. And the calculating mind will never be uh, satisfied uh, when, it's, when, it's quantifying, when it's quantifying results based on some measurement system, right? It's, it's simply the the joy of your involvement and your refining of yourself. And this can be, we're going to refine this further though, because this can also get carried away a bit. Um, But, but basically anyone that's doing something um, because of the, the joy of doing it is going to get satisfaction from it, but that doesn't have to be necessarily something as romantic as playing music. You can be um, like, uh, like an actuary you can be doing oh, yeah. something. Coding is a great example. So yeah. it's like flow uh, it, that you can find flow in almost any activity, including killing people. So you can imagine an immoral flow, or or the, what uh, in the Taoist studies we talk about the um, immoral, the the assassin, the perfect assassin. So right. he is well killing people, but he's in flow while doing it, and he loves doing it. Right. So mm-hmm. you can actually become get this description of growing at some skill can apply to any skill. Uh, that involves some kind of challenge if you have the resource. So flow is a scientific concept and it's very similar to the Wu Wei of the ancient Chinese philosophers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it can be applied to, to anything. But I let's take music because I was just on my mind. But coding is probably one of the closest to my audience and they've probably, or playing video games. Mm-hmm. You can now be, become a millionaire playing video games, which wasn't the case when I was a kid. Right. Yeah. <laughs> 
So that's that's when you're just like, wow, I'm getting you're you're losing yourself in it. You lose track of time. There's a challenge. You have the resources to meet that challenge, and you're getting immediate feedback on your performance. If those conditions are met, well, you'll be able to get into flow. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just one aspect, by the way, of growing. So you could just grow even if you're not in flow, but you're actually just growing, like kids do, just in their bodies as they go through life. They get bigger and bigger, and sometimes it's fun get new clothes. Sometimes it's not fun because now you can't control this awkward, lanky body anymore. And you have to learn how to do that. But um, that growth is natural. That's not striving. It's not like working really hard. Like somebody's like stretching out their bones. I I know people who want to be taller and they just spend a lot of time hanging. Um, I don't know if that actually worked or not, but it didn't seem like it. (laughs) So that's, that's the difference, right? Growing versus striving. So Mengzi, uh, the, the second generation of Confucian, uh, philosophers um, in so 300 BC, fourth century BC, had an analogy of the striving being with the seeds and the sprouts and all that, of trying to pull the sprouts, and you just end up pulling them right out of the ground because right. you're pulling so hard. It's like the analogy of somebody trying to pull the grass to make it grow faster. Right? That's mm-hmm. striving right. versus all of the proper conditions for the growth of grass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, the thing is, you know. Um, the, another trap of flow states is that, um, everyone's now seeking them. And so now it's just become yet another thing to seek. So people are thinking I'm not in a flow state right now. I must not be living life properly. I must not be growing properly. But in fact, those really clunky periods where there's all this internal conflict and self doubt is an important period of facing an obstacle we have within ourselves. Uh, and that has to be addressed and overcome. Yeah. That's just perfect. Yeah. So those dark, so that right now I think people are going through a period of gestation, right? They literally, it's hard for them to strive. They're not able to go to the office. They're not able to go to their normal ways of getting their achievement fix. And well, for most professions, <laughs> not all. Uh, and right now there are people who are uh, going through a lot of um, health scares or people that they love in the ICU or something. And I'm in, I'm in that case too, and just sort of waiting to see what's going to happen and just hoping for the best, but also realizing that this is a period sort of like the chrysalis of a caterpillar, that the trust of it, the trust is that there will be something greater that will come of it, even if it's not obvious at first. And that is part of growth. So I'm sure when, if you can imagine the mind of a caterpillar, when it, when it enters its cocoon, it's not in flow. Like, yeah, this is really, it's hard to imagine the mind of a caterpillar. But imagine you were a caterpillar. <laughs> that you're not like, yeah, this is the shit, man. I now have to sit here. Well, not sit, lie here and think I'm going to die in this cocoon. But it's, it's this dark tunnel. And um, that's what it's like experientially for a real, true transformation when it's happening. That if you were to struggle against it and resist it and say, no, 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 no this can't happen. This can't happen. And you just go deeper into that into that abyss, um, you're not going to get, you're not going to get through the other end of the tunnel. If you keep fighting the other way, uh, running backwards rather than through it. And, uh, with that stoic image of the obstacle is the way is another great way of explaining it. Mm-hmm. And if it might feel like to you that, that that's striving, but the point of life is that right now here and now is the beautiful thing. So, so many people are, putting off their happiness for some far away, far, far away, far away goal. And part of even going through that chrysalis is I'm not good enough as I am. I'm waiting until I become a butterfly. 
I'm going to put off my happiness until this freaking darkness is over so that I can now experience soaring as a butterfly. And of course, being a butterfly is going to be more, uh, and being up to fly is going to be more pleasurable, uh, enjoyable than being stuck in the cocoon. But even that time in the cocoon is part of the point of life. That, it, and it's, um, this is one of those things that if you can understand it, you can now understand why you're enough just the way you are with all your brokenness, with all your inabilities, <laughs> with all your mistakes and perceived weaknesses and failures. And that that itself is the point of life. That the point of life is not to become perfect. Or even if you were on a, in a monastery, on some fucking mountain, the point of life isn't to become the master meditator. And only then will I find enlightenment. Fuck that. Enlightenment is here right now if you are able to see it. That right here in the dirt, in the darkness, in the grime, in the shit that's happening to you is the flower that, if you were to perceive it, will give you the aroma of life. <laughs> Pushing that analogy a little far now. <laughs> that's Here's the a here really, and now. Right, yeah. Here and now. And I think people that have located their self-worth, you know, in anywhere outside of themselves, um, in all of these external achievements, a really good practice for them, um, if they're not getting it, would be to just say, okay, fine. So having all of this stuff, is there anything special in the stuff that's going to um, make your life better? And no way that would they be able to locate the actual specialness of the stuff. Okay, money is only good and has value insofar as there's a story of what it can be translated to around it. It can get me this. It can get me that. It can make this girl like me. It can get me that. It's all just this mutually agreed upon story that we're looking for in all of the stuff we gather, right? I want a nice house so that when people come over, they say, ooh, what a nice house, and then I feel good. So let's go beyond all of the stuff now and just think about, okay, so how's the stuff going to make you feel? right? What's the state this stuff is going to give you? And when people start to dig into that, they like imagine like, okay, I'm now in my ideal life. I have everything I need, everything I can possibly imagine making it everything I need it to be. How do I feel? Right? And they'll usually come up with some simple language. I feel, you know, like I feel uh, just really inspired. I feel really um, pleasant. I feel uh, just really connected. You know, and because now that's a period when this like agitated sense of I just need more to feel a little better is gone. So now they're just left with like, I feel this. And, I, and then you say, okay, fine. So why can't you have that right now? It's just a feeling. It's the most, it's something that can be generated in the snap of a finger. It's not located in any of the things. The things are just this sort of way of stimulating the feeling, but they can actually access that feeling right now and cut out the middleman of all of this striving. And uh, then once you realize that, um, you can then pursue things that help generate the feeling that aren't going to knock you around in this endless like game of just clawing. Okay, I want to be inspired. What can I do to be inspired? Do I need to like... Um, you know, break $6 million in revenue in my, in my enterprise? Or can I actually experience inspiration by um, making uh, someone smile? And, and in fact, once you look at that, it's like, wow, the simplest little connection I can make with someone can actually give me so much more 
than any of the actual achievements I've even experienced in life up until that point. Now, another layer to this is also now what you're doing is you're just simply living a life of, uh, of service, which is what fulfilled people do. So like this, like, oh, this fulfilled state you want to be in, what are you going to do when you're in that state? Anyone that's in that state of fulfillment, they're now thinking, what can I do for others? That's what they're thinking then, because I have everything I need. So what can I do to lift up everyone around me? Because that'll be the most kind of enriching, life-giving experience I can have. How can I share my fulfillment? That's, that's all any fulfilled person will ever say. They're not like, how can I get more fulfillment? They already have it all. They are, they're already perfectly abundant inside. So think about that and then think, okay, so as a fulfilled person, all I'll, all I'll want to do is make someone smile. That'll give me more than $10 million in revenue. So then seek that and then observe, observe the interaction in making someone smile. Observe your role in it. Observe the power you have to elevate someone and observe the feeling it gives you. And the more you're just kind of aware of the simple hits you can give yourself by just not being anything special, like not being this super human you imagine yourself being, by being your simplest self, um, your simplest like as you shot out of the womb and naturally grew out of the grass, you know, like not being pulled out, but naturally grew in this very natural way that we sort of blossom as people. Um, to become what you are now, that can just simply be present, listen to someone, ask the right questions, maybe, you know, say a kind word and, and watch, your, watch the wonderful effect you can have on someone and say, wow, this is an amazing ability I have. And this is a much more effective and sustainable way to notice your innate value that just sort of naturally blossoms out of you in a, in a much more easier open flow than the sort of hard driving we are normally going to sentence ourselves to, you know, and looking to score all these points. Score those points, by the way. Like, that's, that's fine too. But when that hijacks the uh, the sense of self-worth, then that is when you're going to not only like run into trouble and unnecessary suffering, but actually lose contact with a, a really valuable resource that will have s- such a more profound value and utility for you than your ability to achieve all these things with all your skills. And um, I'm going to leave it there. And actually yeah, uh, see what you great. have to say about that. Yeah. So, the, yeah, that stimulated a three-step way of, that I was thinking of, of getting out of this, this problem here. So, if there's, first of all, the sign that they're not satisfied, that they're not fulfilled, is that they're thinking uh, specific, uh, primarily about what they can get for themselves rather than what they can contribute to others. Mm-hmm. And this is a nice way of showing somebody who likes to think highly of themselves um, and think they're very advanced psychologically or, or in maturity. Um, but they're still not focused on contribution, not con- contributing to their kids at home or to their wife. But, but prim- primarily maybe they're like ticking off or checking that box of contribution because they donated to some philanthropic cause 10% of their proceeds or whatever. Right. And so this is a nice corporate move to assuage your conscience and, uh, uh, when it really wasn't part of contribution, it was just part of a corporate uh, policy. And if that gets their attention, well, um, 
then that's great and we can move on. Um, but even if it doesn't, here's another one. Uh, what do you want to feel at the end of your striving? So that's what part of what you were getting at. <clears throat> so hopefully, if you achieve this faraway goal, then uh, you will be overjoyed, right? You're going to celebrate. Yes, I've made it. I am great. And I'm now awesome. I can show mom and dad. They'll be proud of me. I can be proud of myself. Um, of course, you'll have other financial benefits or whatever. So that feels nice for you. And you'll feel while. that forever. That feeling will never go away. Just so you know. <laughs> right. right. So that, yeah, that'll last, right? Uh, and anyway, so the, well, the point, the, the, what, one way that achievers get around or don't have to confront the realization that they don't believe they're enough is because enough and worthy sounds so low and easy to attain versus great and a billionaire and awesome and a gold medalist and all, like some super high thing. And, you know, they'll settle for silver or bronze, right? Uh, but they really want to get gold. And what they don't realize is that what we're, when we in psych- psychologists are, are using the terminology of enough or worthy, we're also in achiever language that means that you're great, that you're awesome, that you've made it, that you're the man, that you're successful, right? So that it ends up being um, only when I'm successful can I feel good about myself. Or for a lot of the guys that um, are attracted to my dating material, only when I'm successful am I enough to date. I just heard that one or saw that one on Facebook today in the comments, one of my posts. Um, I got to be enough. I got to work so hard just to be enough to date or good enough to date, um, to be worthy of it. I got to work so hard. I was like, whoa, where's that? Where's this, where's this coming from? And this whole mindset and approach will sabotage your dating success. Um, the idea that you're not good enough just in the way in who you are as a human being, but that you've got to do all the striving to get this feeling. And the point that you made is you can get that feeling right now. And most people don't know how to do that. <laughs> so yeah. the harsh truth is uh, most people have not read Stoic philosophy, have not studied Buddhism, have not studied emotions or even, the, or even just basic psychology. So they don't know what actually causes emotions. They just think they, they feel all kinds of emotions, but they don't know why. They have no, and because they don't know why or what the triggers are, they have no way of controlling them. And they don't know how to control their, their uh, physiology, their bodies, of deeper breathing, of looking in certain directions, of standing up straighter, of opening up. They haven't ever done yoga or any kind of movement practice. They don't know. They have never felt that. Or they've never consciously made that connection between mm-hmm. uh, having a really great workout and feeling good at the end um, or even just sitting in meditation. Um, most people have not done that. So they're not yet aware of how powerful just changing your physiology can be. Um, they haven't uh, walked on fire. For instance, if you'd done the Tony Robbins event, Unleash the Power Within, you would have experienced it that way in a very powerful way. So that is a dangerous thing because it will actually just give you more achiever energy. <laughs> You're like, I like this because I, I can do, I can use this to get more of what that, uh, that striving. I can strive harder. <clears throat> but anyway, so, but the thing is it does work, right? So this, uh, control over your physical body. And then, of course, your language that you use to describe your reality and to parse your reality and what you focus on mentally that will then lead to these thoughts le- then leading to, um, because of interpretations in a certain way, will le- then lead to emotions. And all, all of those factors are controllable, but they are a skill and you can get better at them. <laughs> and uh, returning to the most fundamental point we're making, so that, that three-step thing was uh, realizing that uh, you're trying to striving for this feeling at the end of it, not the actual uh, physical thing you get, like a trophy or or cash or money, or whatever. But that it's a feeling that you want, that you can get that feeling. Actually, if you just develop certain skills and control 
control over the factors that lead to those feelings. And then uh, finally, the fact that uh, the fact that you're not driven by contribution is a sign um, that you're still striving and trying to accrue to yourself. Because often the the belief is or the assumption is, when I'm enough, then I will give. <clears throat> you know, when I've made enough money, then I'll be able to give. Because right now I don't got enough from me based on uh, whatever your goal that you're striving for is. I haven't reached that goal yet. When I get that, then I will contribute. And um, Again, this is a sign that you're not filled up yet, that your cup is not yet runneth over, <laughs> that you know, you're still looking to fill that need of that you're enough and that you're good enough or that you're awesome or great or whatever it is that in your ter- terminology that you need to say, yeah, this is, this is when, I, when I can be um, good enough to rest now. And um, part of the practical implication of this is many people who are striving for that like achieving, striving to get that feeling that they're awesome, that they're the achiever thinks awesome is the thing they're striving for, but we keep saying enough. <laughs> and once, once they realize they are good enough, their fear is, well, the fear is if they think that they're good enough, they're going to become lazy and not do anything. They just sit at home and uh, watch TV and eat Ben and Jerry's ice cream all day. Actually, I'll, I'll, I just want to say something about this. There's been a kind of an advent in self-compassion, which Sounds again kind of fluffy, but like it's, it's studies that have looked into the effect of actually forgiving ourselves for not being this incredible person we've imagined we've imagined ourselves being. And by the way, if you think that you're always pressuring yourself and you're like a uniquely striving person, you are not. Everyone is constantly destroying themselves inside for um, not meeting some requirements or expectations they've set for themselves. Um, but. Uh, research has shown that people that actually um, have compassion for themselves when they're not perfect, when they stumble, when they make mistakes, and actually when they in fact embrace themselves when they make mistakes and aren't perfect because they know that's when they're learning the most, um, actually uh, achieve more and actually are more successful in life. Um, Firstly, because they're more ready to experience um, the pain and difficulty of making mistakes because they know they're going to be fine with it. And in fact, the harder you are on yourself, the more you're probably going to end up subconsciously avoiding challenges because you actually can't emotionally take it because you're actually going to be so hard on yourself and you know that you will, that you'll actually be more likely to avoid major challenges. And actually, the more self-worth you have, the more you'll put yourself in front of any challenge because you know that even if you blunder it completely, you know your innate value anyway. And um, this was just yet another external event that doesn't have to have any influence on, on your sense of yourself and who you are. And that there's going to be many more opportunities anyway to export your value to the world. And so um, there's really um, far less approach anxiety when it comes to big challenges, um, the more self-compassion you have. And the science is in on that, if, if that's what you need to actually start giving yourself a break. Well, yeah. And I, I want to tell the achievers that it shouldn't matter. So I, I know plenty of people who are very successful and they're neurotic and they're restless. And when they're not working, when they're sitting with their family or alone or whatever on their downtime, <clears throat> that they're not experiencing the goodness of life. 
And they're wondering why, because they've worked so hard at, jo- at their job, worked so hard, so much harder than everyone else, because it feels like hard work, because it's not enjoyable. And maybe it was, they had a talent when they were younger, like the example with music, and then they, they had to professionalize it. And then that brings all this other stuff that's not enjoyable. They just enjoyed the music. <clears throat> or they just played so much and so one-dimensional that they didn't get to have all kinds of other kind of creative outlets. <clears throat> and so they started hating this one thing that we're forced to do. But now they have no choice because they didn't develop anything else, they feel. So they just keep doing it more and more and more, and they hate it. And they get, but they, get really, they can get really good at it that way. In fact, I know a lot of really rich people who are miserable. So even if the empirical evidence is not there for that claim, the claim isn't that we're making you that the claim we're making is not that you'll be more successful, right? If you believe you're enough, because that would just encourage your striving more. So you're like, Oh, there's a new way to strive. (laughs) I just believe I'm enough and I'll get, finally I'll get that. Yeah. And then the whole thing will elude you because for you to even begin the whole project with that desire will sabotage the whole thing. And so here's, so the one practical thing I would leave is uh, we're still focusing on what do you want to feel at the end of it? You, so, so many people think success, but right. So success isn't a feeling per se. It, it's a, it's a metric, right? It's like some kind of external thing. So it's money or you, you won the race, you broke the tape before anyone else since you crossed the finish line. Um, but then what do you hope to feel at the end of it? Because you're not just a robot. And by the way, if it just comes down to success, you will be replaced by an Android. I just watched the whole season of Picard on Amazon. It was <laughs> awesome. They brought back data. Data is like going to beat you on everything, right? All these synthetics, right? These AI robots. And they'll even maybe figure out how to program what seems like emotions, right? That, that's the whole point of AI. It has its own consciousness, right? And they will kick your ass at everything. They're smarter than you. They'll do computation faster than you. They have projections faster than you. They'll be able to run faster than you. Holding stronger than you. And then what? What good are you as a human being? Well, now we're just competing in the minor leagues, right? And so now I have to settle for the minor leagues. But uh, what you'll discover is once you let go of all the striving, especially as an adult, you'll discover that there are things that you really do enjoy that you're not allowing yourself to, to indulge, so to speak. And that's an, uh, the achiever's view. That is an indulgence, right? that this is just fun stuff, but it has no real payoff in the, in the striving that I need in order to feel like I'm awesome, in it, which in other words means I'm enough. And when you finally believe that you're enough, you'll discover, and I've seen this over and over, that these very successful, very rich guys who hated their day jobs but did it to earn a paycheck and were just fucking good at it, but they have burnt out on it, <clears throat> finally discover that they really enjoy fucking, I don't know, basket weaving. It could be anything, right? So we know a guy who... Uh, an example of a, of a friend, a mutual friend, who was trying to do a startup, a tech startup for years and years and years. The thing freaking failed, and there were, his heart was never really into it. You know, in his mid-20s, he was starting to learn coding, just to start coding, instead of trying to, well, they were hiring coders, but he just wanted to. So anyway, and then his passion was this whole other thing. It was uh, in the culinary field. And when he finally embraced that, like, I'll just freaking do this, even if I'm in a freaking basement, and no, you know, the the uh, traditional Asian community that I grew up in doesn't respect this profession, but I'm really good at it and I love it. And maybe it's not going to make me millions and millions, but I love it. He embraced that and went all in. And he, guess what? He enjoyed his life. He enjoyed the activity. He was really passionate about it. He innovated. It was just coming to him naturally because this is what he loved to do. And then later 
he was able to monetize it or capitalize on it more. And this is amazing thing about living in the 21st century. There are so many ways to monetize your passions. And this is one of Gary Vaynerchuk's really cool messages from the beginning. Um, it's like, if you're into Smurfs, Smurf it up. Make a Smurf blog. And when they have the Smurfs movie, they'll contact you and pay $100,000 to sponsor you. And that was, in fact, what happened. Right? So you can actually make a decent living. You probably won't be a billionaire, but you can make a decent living doing the thing you really enjoy. But that's down the road. First, you have to become really good at it. <laughs> and improving in something that you love doing doesn't feel like striving anymore. Maybe once in a while, you know, once a month, you don't feel like doing it, but you do it anyway. But most of the time, if, if that's just natural growth because you love doing it. The more you do it, the better you get at it. Because you love it, you're constantly searching for new sources of, and it gives you energy. And you bring this energy to your relationships. And now you're open, right? So you're, now you're enjoying life because no one enjoys being around someone who hates their life. And it's just like working really hard and resents the whole thing and just can't wait until I can finally, uh, you know, cash out on this freaking company I hate creating. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, versus the person who's making maybe 70,000 a year instead of seven, 7 million a year. But at that 70,000 is loving life, enjoying every, you know, every aspect of it. And when his kids come up and meet him, he's like got a big smile on his face and is able to be present with his kids because he feels like he's enough. So that's, that's part of the practical payoff. If it's the feelings that you're after, you can get those feelings right now. And even more, the days that you, those hours each day that you spend on that activity that you're striving in, if you were to just put that into something that you really enjoy because you believe you're enough, you don't have to go and become a, a doctor because mom and dad won't love you unless you do. But you can do this other thing, maybe just playing guitar or whatever it is. And if you get, the more you do it, the better you'll get at it, but maybe you still won't get better at it. But what the liberating thing is, you'll enjoy your life. And I also had this question repeatedly asked in the past few months. I don't know if it has to do with the coronavirus or not, but um, this impending doom, like we're going to die. Everyone's going to lose their jobs. We're going to go through depression. Uh, we're going to live out in the street and all this. And um, that's a deep concept of what if you were going to die tomorrow? or five years from now, or you know, some, some people who are really uh, worried about climate change think the earth, earth is going to end in like 20 years. I have no idea. Anyway, the science on that. But okay, let's assume that. All right. That's good for you All right, to, to think. I could die in 20 years. Life could end 20 years, or five years, or tomorrow. What would you do with your now? Because if you were striving so hard and putting off, delaying your gratification and enjoyment of life until the end, and then your end comes much sooner than you thought. How tragic would that be? But you can actually discover right now, in the here and now, in the present, all of the enjoyment that you've been putting off. I want to leave with, uh, I know we got to go. I want to leave us with something. So I'm really into tea ceremony. It's a practice that makes me simply just enjoy the simplicity of being me in the moment, sharing tea with others. That's my mindful service, um, like crucible. It's really powerful. Um, the slogan of that is uh, Ichigo Ichi'i, uh, which was uh, one encounter, one opportunity. Where did that come from? It came from Ai Naosuke, who was a shogun uh, like official from like 19th century um, feudal Japan, who um, knew at any moment he was going to get assassinated. He knew he was going to die. And so what became really important to him? The really simple things, the really simple pleasures of connecting with people. And he had total reverence for it. And the tea ceremony is a practice of discovering your total reverence for the small 
miracles of just simply being a human being in this moment, able to share it with another. That's all I'll yeah. say on that. Yeah. Awesome. Let's, let's uh, wrap it up there as a great ending. Thanks so much for watching and listening and uh, glad we got to dive deeper into this topic. Thanks so much, Stefan. And where can they find more about you? I'm on the uh, Serve Conscious Education project that I founded to teach people how to uh, take whatever service role they're in and make it their crucible for self-development. www.serveconscious.com. Lots of free content and free education tools and also one-on-one consultation on uh, how to serve better and general meditation and mindfulness in your life. And you, David? Yeah, very cool. And you can find me at davidtnphd.com. That's davidtianphd.com. I've got another couple podcasts. One of them is the DTPHD podcast, David TN PhD podcast. Uh, you can find um, on our website and another one on masculinity issues called Man Up, Masculinity for the Intelligent Man. So you can, go, you can find out more about that on um, our website at davidtnphd.com. And this is part of the Tension Mindfulness Project. And you can discover more about tension mindfulness at tensionmindfulness.com. That's T-E-N-S-H-I-N mindfulness.com. Thanks so much, Stefan. That was awesome. And uh, we'll wrap it up here. Thanks so much for listening and watching. A pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thank you, David. Hey, it's David again. Before you go, a couple last things. First, all the show notes and links to resources can be found at davidtnphd.com backslash dtphdpodcast. Or you can just go to davidtnphd.com and find it through the top navigation menu. Second, if you'd like to interact with me and other like-minded fans of this podcast personally, then join our private DTPHD podcast Facebook group. We've got an awesome community of intelligent, wise individuals from literally all around the world. You can send a join request to the group using the link you'll find in the show notes of every podcast at davidtnphd.com backslash dtphdpodcast. Click the link, log into your Facebook, and then click to join. We approve join requests every day. So go to davidtnphd.com and click the link to join. See you inside our group.